Bibles to the book of uh, Revelation, please. I've had the privilege of teaching Wednesday nights out here for uh, 26 years. And there is no book in the Bible like the book of Revelation that makes excitement for people. If you mentioned you're going through the book of Revelation, people get excited about it. And I think if you've never studied out the book of Revelation, you're going to probably be initially a bit disappointed. Because I think people think the book of Revelation is, chapter one, I'm going to find out who the Antichrist is. Chapter two, I'll find out when the rapture is going to happen. And chapter three, I'll have every end times question answered. I do not know how many times I've had the opportunity to teach the book of Revelation, but I still don't know when the rapture is going to be. I don't have all the questions answered. I do know who the Antichrist is. I don't like to talk about it publicly, but that's, that's something separate. The reality is you don't even get into end times into chapter 6 in the book of Revelation. So if you're here tonight and you're excited about the idea of end times, it doesn't happen to chapter 6. And what happens is with the book of Revelation is to truly understand it, you really got to get chapter 1. Now, I, like I said, I've, this is the book. I would have to go back and look. I keep track of all the books I've, I've taught through. And I believe this one's got to be near the top the many times. Most of the time, I would probably say it's probably one of the Gospels. And I go through the book of Acts a lot because generally we finish a Gospel and we go right into the book of Acts. But this is one we go back to a lot. And I remember when COVID first hit a few years ago, I had some people really saying, boy, we've got to get into Revelation. I think they thought Revelation was going to answer COVID questions. And it, it doesn't answer COVID questions. But the last time we talked through Revelation was actually six years ago, which is a pretty quick turnaround for us to go back into a book that we really only did six years ago. But I think it's a very opportune time to go through this. And I'm going to teach this book differently than how I've taught before in the past. I'm notorious for taking a long time to go through studies. Book of Revelation, though, I've always gone through fairly quickly. Um, my mom and dad were asking me Sunday after church what book I was going through next on Wednesday, and I said I was leaning towards the book of Revelation. And dad keeps track of his Bible when I started and when I end books. And I think he said that we got through the book of Revelation last time in about six months, seven months. That's really good for me <laughs> to get through a 22-chapter book because I go at a pretty good pace through the book of Revelation because it flows. I'm going differently this time. So if you've heard me teach you this book before, we're going to go through it a little differently and not saying we're changing the content, but we're really going to change the way we look at it because I really want us to see what Revelation is teaching us. A lot of times, once again, when you really start to understand the book, are people like, okay, let's, let's just get through the first five chapters and let's get to these seal judgments in chapter six. And let's get to the Antichrist in chapter 13. and Let's get to the second coming in, in, in chapter 19. We'll get to that. But to really understand the book, you got to understand verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to a servant, John. First things first, it's the book of Revelation. It is not Revelations. There's just a revelation. And it's the revelation of what? Jesus Christ. That is the entire purpose of the book. If you're coming with the mindset that this is going to answer end times questions, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be disappointed. If you're looking at Revelation solely for end times, rapture, second coming, antichrist, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, those things are in there, but you're supposed to understand this book for one reason only. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're revealing who he is. That word for revelation is where we get the word apocalypse. Now, when we think of apocalypse, we think of the end of the world. That's kind of what the meaning has come. It really means an unveiling. 
It was used in the idea, and the best example I've ever heard is imagine someone making a statue and covering it with a sheet. The revelation, the apocalypse, is you take that sheet off immediately, and then everybody sees at the same time what was under the sheet. That's what that word means. So this book is really the unveiling, the apocalypse of who Jesus is. It's revealing who he is. Is there end times in it? You bet there is. But it's really all about Christ. So we have to set that point right there in verse 1. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I remember years ago when I taught through the book that there was a couple that was coming out here to church that said, why are we going through end times? Their their mentality was this. They said, if you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, which we'll get to all that stuff some other time when we'll start defining the terms, what that means, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. They said, we're not going to be here anyway for this. What difference does it make? The problem is the Bible teaches a different mindset on that. Just some quick passages. When it comes to end times, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 21 to look up. He says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. As we get closer to the end, we're supposed to look up. I see a lot of Christians, when we get closer to the end, they're not looking up, they're looking around. Don't look around. You're going to get confused. You're going to wonder. You're going to get into speculation. No, look up. Look up, your redemption draws near. Number two, when it comes to end times, we're supposed to be, dare I say, excited about this. Philippians chapter three. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly wait for him. John Piper says this. Do we eagerly long for the coming of Christ? Or do we want him to stay a while while our love affair with the world runs its course? That's the question that tests the authenticity of faith. That's the issue for us. Do we love his appearing or do we love the world and hope that his appearing will not interrupt our plans? Eternity hangs on this question. Now, I got to be honest with you. I really started praying about what that means to eagerly wait, to love his appearing, as the Bible says. And I came to two conclusions, and I was wrong on both accounts. When I want Christ to return... It's usually, number one, that I'm going through a really difficult time and I'm ready for it to be over. And I've said this before. Jesus, if you want to return right now, amen. It's a completely selfish reason. I don't care about the glory of the Lord. I don't care about every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I just want James's suffering and pity party to be over. So Jesus, this is a really good time for you to return. Now, there's nothing wrong with anticipating heaven and anticipating the the peace that comes physically, mentally, spiritually. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think Jesus is up in heaven saying, oh, James is ready for me to come. I don't think that's the way it's working. Number two, I have to be honest that there's been seasons in life I never thought about the return of Christ. It's going so good down here. I mean, it's a great season. And so the idea of Jesus returning goes in one ear and out the other. Because, I mean, if he wants to come back, that's great. But right now, i really got a lot going on down here. And there's a line in a Christian song that came out in the mid-90s by the Newsboys, if you guys ever were listening to music at that time, where the line is speaking to Jesus, where it says, I heard you're coming back again. When you do, could you bring me something from the fridge? And it was just that mentality of the end is coming, but yeah, I'm really kind of busy down here. And I think when it comes to end times, we have to be careful of that. I'm so focused on the world that the return of Christ really doesn't impact me. And at the same time, I'm so focused on the return of Christ, but I'm really not focused on his glory and what that really means. Revelation will show us what really matters is when we understand his return, it's all about him. 
all about him. Next one, when it comes to end times, there's signs. According to Matthew 16, we're supposed to discern the signs of the times. We're supposed to be able to stop and say, hey, I'm discerning the signs of the times. Matthew chapter 24 says that there's pre-labor birth pains that we'll be able to see, hey, things are coming together. And we're also not to be ignorant of these things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrows others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So we're not supposed to be ignorant. So when it comes to end times, we're supposed to look up, not look around. We're supposed to eagerly await his return. We're supposed to discern the signs. And we're not supposed to be ignorant of it. Now I have to give you a quick warning before we keep going on here. Some little phrases I picked up over the years from different pastors. There's a danger in majoring in the minors. I know some people when it comes to end times, they get themselves caught up and tripped up on the tiniest little things. Be very careful about that. Anytime there's an article about a certain country, they are just going nuts. Anytime there's a new book about something, they're going nuts. They are so caught up in the concept of end times and the return of Christ, they start to major in the minors. John Calvin used to warn of something called excessive curiosity. That you get so focused on something, you miss the big picture. We're supposed to let the plain things be the main things. The plain thing is Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. And he rose again, defeated death. And that's the gospel message we're supposed to present. That's the main thing. It is not wrong to understand in times. That's a biblical concept. But I just want to encourage you, don't get so caught up on what ifs and newspaper headlines and this is what's happening or that because it can become very, very dangerous. We've got to keep our focus on the purpose of the book, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of who he is. Now, one last thing before we actually get into the book. Can you go with me, please, to Revelation chapter 9? There's a lot of strange passages in this book. A lot of strange passages. And people start getting confused. Are we supposed to take this book symbolic? Are we supposed to take this book literal? Are we supposed to find a happy medium? How am I supposed to discern these things? Because that's really good to decide a lot of how you interpret the book of what you get into it. And I want to give you an example here in Revelation chapter 9 of what I'm talking about. Revelation chapter 9, and I know we're jumping right in the middle of it, so, so I can't believe I'm saying this. Don't, don't worry about the context right now. I know I've told you for years, always worry about the context. But just right now, don't worry about the context. Just Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them were given the power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now we're going to pause right there. This is why people love Revelation. This is apocalyptic language. I mean, this is a smoke and the furnace and, and stars falling from heaven and scorpions stinging people. And look what happens next in verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. That is a fascinating verse when we get to it. But this is where I want to start to show you the importance of language. I want you to start looking in verse 7. And I want you to notice how many times the word like is used. 
Verse 7. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had a breastplate like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, their powers to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe was passed, behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Why did I take you there? Look how many times the word like is used. It's used eight times. That is supposed to be a hint to us as we're going through this, saying the description given right there of these things, it's like this, it's like that. This is symbolic language that we're supposed to be able to step back. Now, somebody can come and say, I believe that the Bible is literal and everything should be taken literal. That's fine. If you truly want to come and believe, verse 7, that they had hair like a woman and their face was like the face of a man, that would be kind of creepy and weird, but there's a lot of stuff in Revelation. But the problem with that is sometimes you run into verses, like in the book of Isaiah, that says God is like a hen that puts us under his wing. I don't think any of us here actually think that God has chicken wings. Jesus said, I am the door. We don't think he's an actual walking door. We have to look at the context of the passage to be able to figure out if it's symbolic or literal. And that's what we're going to do as we're going through the book of Revelation is stopping at certain points and saying, okay, can, can we discern at this moment? Because when we read through Revelation 9, you see the repetition of the word like. Obviously, John through the Spirit is trying to say, this is the description of it. It's like this. And that helps us then to be able to understand a little bit. So let's jump back now to Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. He is the emphasis of the book. I cannot stress that enough. Which God gave him to show his servants things that must shortly take place. And he has sent and signified by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Note the order of the message. The order of the message is this. The revelation came from Christ by sending his angel to John. So here's the progression. It goes from God the Father to Christ the Son to the angel to John. That's how this message is going. One more time. It goes from God the Father to Christ the Son to the angel who then gives us to John. John writes it down and now we get to read it. That's the order of how this came. And it's this idea here of the things that must soon take place, must shortly take place. What a fascinating word there for soon or shortly. It does not mean that it was supposed to happen soon. So like if, if my kids came and said, Dad, can we go get ice cream? I say, sure, I'll, I'll take you here soon. I'll take you here shortly. And then 2,000 years later, I haven't done it. This is an interesting word, and we have to get into sometimes some word studies. I'm not a car guy. I've made that abundantly clear that I'm not a car guy in any way whatsoever. But it's this word right here for soon, shortly, that we get the word tachometer for a car. And obviously we know with the tachometer, it's not actually showing you how fast the car is going. It's how the RPMs of the car. And this is what we're talking about here. So when you see this word soon, it means once this happens, it starts to happen quickly. It doesn't mean that the event is going to occur soon, but it means once it starts happening... It goes quickly. That's what you're seeing here with end times. There's like this build-up pressure that once the end times event starts happening, and we'll get into this here in, in a little bit here, not this week, but in the upcoming weeks, if we believe in that actual idea of a seven-year tribulation with the pre-tribulation rapture, and we'll get into all that stuff, there's a lot of things that are going to happen in a short period of time. 
And once these judgments start happening here in Revelation chapter 6, you see how these things will shortly or soon take place. And imagine that tachometer just going really quick because that's what the idea is. And this idea of soon is going to be mentioned multiple times here through the book of Revelation. In fact, it's mentioned, I think, six or seven times to show how quickly this is a fast-paced book. And that's why when I've taught it before in years past, we were able to cover a lot of ground very quickly because it does move so quickly. But we're going to slow it down here just a little bit. One other point about this. Verse 3. Look at the blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. But maybe you came out of a church that really didn't emphasize you know, the, the verse-by-verse teaching of God's word. And maybe they didn't get into the book of Revelation. I've never understood that. This book has a double blessing. There is a blessing promised right here to those who are reading it and those who are hearing it. And factually, the the word is singular in verse 3. So I am blessed by reading this book to you, and you guys are blessed by hearing this book. Now, it gives us a little bit of a hint into how the early church worked. You know, when Paul, through the Spirit, or Peter, or John, or James, or whoever would feel led and write the book and be sent out, they had that manuscript that was sent out. That manuscript most likely was sent to a church, and that church would have then had a public reading of it. They only had one copy. So then what would happen is that copy would start making other copies. So they would have a copy of this book of Revelation or the Gospel of John. And then so what would happen is that book is sent to that church, and they say, this is amazing, this is God's word. And they would say, we need to get this out. So they would take that copy, they say they would take that original, and they'd make a copy of it. And they start making a copy of a copy. Now we're getting into a little bit of textual criticism. You can see now why there can become different ideas on different verses because start, when you start making a copy of a copy of a copy, it's like the game of telephone. Things just start to change a little bit here and there, but the purpose of tonight is not textual criticism. But the point is in verse 3, this book would show up and they would have a guy read it. And this book is saying right from the beginning, you're blessed if you get to read this book. And not only blessed if you get to read this book, you're blessed if you get to hear this book being read. I don't know why anybody would hide from this book. Dig into it. Understand it. Grasp it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think the reason people have a fear sometimes of this book is because they think it's end times. It is end times. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you're not only supposed to hear it. Please note, blessed is he who reads it and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep that you got to keep it. It's not just about hearing it. It's not just about reading it. It's taking it and obeying it. It's applying it. And the book ends with the same mindset. Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You're blessed to read it. You're blessed to hear it. And you're blessed when you keep it. This also shows how important this book is. Can you go with me, please, to Revelation chapter 22? Jump to the end. Blessed to read it, blessed to hear it, blessed to keep it. But also take a look at Revelation 22, verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of of the book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. That's quite the warning. Why is there such a severe warning? Because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of who he is. 
And this is not something you want to go mess with. And this is why I find so interesting with nearly any false cult, false religion, they're twisting the book of Revelation. And they're taking passages. I mean, when we get to the 144,000, you're going to realize how many different opinions there are on the 144,000. I, I was out mowing on Friday, and a van pulled into my driveway that I did not recognize, and two very nice people got out, and they wanted to talk to me about the end of the world. I knew where this was going, and they said, have you ever heard of the Watchtower Society? And so I'm in my full mowing garb, and they're all dressed up. And any time the Jehovah Witnesses come to my house, which has been a long time since they've come to my house, I, I, I usually am very polite. I let them talk for a little bit. And then once they start getting into the watchtower, I usually interrupt them. I say, I just want to let you know I, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. And they always say, oh, this is so exciting. And I always say, you don't know how excited I am. Um, I mean, this is, this, is what I, this is what I live for. And so we had a wonderful conversation. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. But the point is, they are taking the revelation of Jesus Christ and they have a completely different Jesus than we do. They have a completely different view of end times than we do. It's a very dangerous thing to go into the book of Revelation and start to change these things. That's why it's read it, hear it, but then keep it, take it, and obey it. That is not anything I'm trying to warn you with. It's just the warning that is given to say we really want to understand who Jesus Christ is. Why? Because verse 3, for the time is near. It is vitally important to emphasize the time is near. Please, once again, understand, and, and I'm not trying to get into you know, Greek word studies here, but you've got to understand sometimes the depth of some of these words. There's different ideas for time. Sometimes the word time carries the idea of the clock says it's this time. This idea for time right here means the season is near. That means the end time season is coming near. We're into fall right now. Hard to believe. We were just had a, a staff meeting here before our church, and we're going through the calendar of the upcoming events. And, you know, we're planning the stuff up through Christmas. Why? Because the time is near. If someone would come and say, oh, you're saying Christmas is right around the corner? Well, no, but the time is near. That's the season we're approaching. The end time season is near, and the time is coming. Let's pause before we get into verse 4 here and the rest of it. Any quick questions about anything thus far before we move on with this, making sure we understand it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and the blessing that comes out of it. Good so far? All right, let's move on. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and for our Father, to be him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All through the book is John. Now, obviously, if you ask 100 people, you get 100 opinions. But the reality is, all the evidence points to this being John. That is the John that wrote the Gospel of John. That's what we're teaching, and that's what we believe, that this is John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Book of Revelation, and also the Gospel of John. This would be the disciple that Jesus loved, according to the Book of John. Church tradition says that he uh, lived the longest of all the disciples, and so therefore it makes sense. Revelation, when you study out the book, it sure looks like it was the last book written here, a much later date than the other books there, because it would have a much deeper end times. It makes sense that this is the book for the New Testament to end on, because it is that finality. It takes us into eternity. So please also note that this book, it says right here in verse 4, Grace to you in peace. Actually, before we get to that, the seven churches who are in Asia, that's present-day Turkey. 
So Asia Minor and those seven churches are in chapters 2 and 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, the actual seven churches there that the letter is written to. Please note the greeting. It's grace and peace. This is not a book of fear. This is a book of blessing. This is a book of encouragement. It's almost like sometimes when people get in the book of Revelation, they're like trembling a little bit. No, grace and peace. Read this book. Understand who Jesus is. And this grace and peace, look at the description. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. What a great description. Who is and who was and who is to come. A never-ending source. A never-ending source of grace and peace. Can you imagine getting to heaven? Then after a few thousand years, peace and grace run out. No, it's everlasting. I love what Psalm 105 says. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting. Everlasting grace, everlasting peace, everlasting mercy. That's the beauty of the eternity of heaven. It never stops. Even on our best day down here on earth, it comes to an end. We're going to get hungry again. We're going to get tired. Something's going to happen. But the eternalness of never-ending grace, peace, and mercy, what a beautiful thing is, and what that comes from, the, from the one that who uh, is and who was and who is to come. Remember that phrase. We're going to come back to it. Let's also talk a little bit more about this idea of peace. Peace, description of God, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we get closer to Christmas. He is the prince of peace. Philippians 4, 6 through 8, be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God with thanksgiving and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Well, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What a beautiful picture is of this grace and peace from who is and who was and who is to come. Seven spirits before his throne. That's an interesting thing. A lot of people have a lot of opinions on that. I have no problem going through the book of Revelation saying, hey, there's multiple opinions on this because that's the reality is. Now, I believe what we'll do is we'll say, here are the different opinions and here's the one that seems to make the most biblical, logical sense. But I would not create doctrinal division over some of these things. The most logical thing to the seven spirits here is the idea coming from Isaiah 11, verse 2. Here it talks about this. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Speaking of the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. If you count that up, there's seven different spirits there mentioned in Isaiah 11, verse 2, showing this complete blessing of the spirit being upon the throne and being there with God the Father. But now we get into the revelation of Jesus of who he is, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Because verse 4 is describing the Father and from Jesus Christ. And look at the Jesus Christ description. First thing you see in verse 5, he is the faithful witness. That was the whole point of Jesus coming to earth. He's a faithful witness of God the Father. John chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That's why it's called the Word. The Word describes something. If I mention a tree, that word tree describes a tree. You understand what I'm talking about. Jesus is the Word that describes the Father. He is the faithful witness. John chapter 5 says this. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Because why? The Son is a faithful witness of the Father. This is the unity in the Trinity. You can't have God the Father going left and the Son going right. It doesn't work that way. They don't have differences of doctrine or differences of opinion. There's complete unity between them. And that's why Jesus is the faithful witness. When you see Christ, you've seen the Father. Look at the next description of him. We're describing who Jesus is. It's the unveiling of him. He is the firstborn from the dead. 
Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Colossians calls him the firstborn over all creation. 1 Corinthians 15, he is risen from the dead. He is the firstfruits, and here in Revelation, he is called the firstborn from the dead. That's a very important phrase. I mentioned to you the Jehovah Witnesses that popped over uh, Friday, and this subject came up in the discussion with them. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn? Now, when you look at that word firstborn, it has a literal meaning to it. Elias is my firstborn. You have kids that are your firstborn. So that is used in the Bible. Jesus is referred to as the firstborn son of Mary. So she had other children after Jesus, but in Luke chapter 2, he is the firstborn. But the word also carries a much deeper meaning. And that's what it's talking about here in Colossians and Corinthians and here. This idea of not just his beginnings, but to also firstborn representing supremacy and honor It's the idea of Jesus is the firstborn, the preeminent. He is number one. He is everything. And it's trying to show this description of who he is. He is the firstborn over all creation, as Colossians chapter 1 says. He has all the rights. He has all the privileges. He has all the authority of the firstborn because he is God himself. That's why it carries a much deeper meaning than just the firstborn. To give you an English example of that, when we have a president and his wife is known as the first lady. Now, she's not the first first lady. Martha Washington was the first first lady. But every president's wife since then is known as the first lady because it's a place of preeminence. It's a place of honor. It's the same thing here with Christ. He is the firstborn. It's a place of preeminence. It's a place of honor. And to really double down on this so that way you understand the context. Remember, context is always key. He is the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the ruler over everything. He's the complete authority. Psalm 72 says, Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Zechariah 14, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. And 1 Timothy 6, The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the first. Preeminence, authority, power, everything. So you have this faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, defeated death, that's why we can have resurrection. The ruler of all the kings. But look at his description in verse 5. So he described who he is. Now he's going to tell us what he did. Verse 5. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Think about this. The most powerful being in all of existence. God himself. That defeated death. That is king of kings and lord of lords. Says I love you. That's amazing. He loved us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. How about Romans 5, 8? But God demonstrates his own love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That idea of love. It's just a beautiful picture of him loving us. And not only loved us, he washed us, he freed us from our sins. Here's the problem, and I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for you. I am so used to being a sinner that sometimes I forget the holiness of God and what he did to make me right in his eyes. Because I'm just so used to sinning. I'm so used to sinning myself. I'm so used to living with sinners. I'm so used to working with sinners. I go to church with sinners. I shop with sinners. I'm just always around sinners. And so to understand the love of God 
to love me that was a complete, utter sinner, and he washed me, he freed me, and made me right in him. It's amazing that God would do that. The holiness of God came down in the form of a man to fix us. And look how he washed us. Verse 5. Washed us from our sins in his own blood. Sounds like a bad horror movie. You don't wash things in blood. You wash blood out of things. But this is a theme that's repeated. Revelation chapter 7. Washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Their robes are made white in the blood of the Lamb. Because the blood takes away our sins. Just imagine how illogical that is. Someone comes and says, oh, I got a stain on my shirt. Oh, let me put a little blood on that. I, I don't think that's the way that works. But in the description of God, we are washed in blood. And not only washed in blood, made white by the washing of the blood of the Lamb. Because why? It's the blood that is precious that takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews makes this a very deep point that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And ultimately, it's Christ who is the blood who is shed that takes away our sins. This is why when we do communion, we have the symbolic picture of the blood. This is why we sing of the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. From an un... I was about to say unbiblical. From an unchristian perspective, a lot of the worship songs and the words we sing make no sense. But when you start stopping and looking what the Bible says, we start realizing why I want to be washed in the blood. Because that means my sins have been forgiven and I have been made white. I am actually made pure by being stained with blood. Now, let's continue on with this. Uh, verse 6, And he made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Kings and priests. What a fascinating thing to think about, that we are kings and priests. It says in, in, in Timothy that we get to reign with him. Now think about that for a second. We will get to reign with Christ. We will have a position of authority. We have a position to be with him. 2 Timothy says this, this is a faithful saying, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. We get to reign with the Lord. That's why he makes us kings. And not only do we get to reign with him, we get to be priests. Let's talk about that for a second, because once again, this is a theme throughout the Bible. Most of the time when we think of the priesthood, we think of the Old Testament. We have to look at it from the New Testament perspective. First Peter chapter 2 says this, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I am a priest, and I'm supposed to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Peter double downs on this in just a couple of verses later. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And three times in the book of Revelation, we are called priests. So therefore, if I am a priest... And I'm supposed to offer up sacrifices. I need to start figuring out what type of sacrifices I'm supposed to offer. Well, they're not animal sacrifices. These are some of the sacrifices that the New Testament lists that we're supposed to offer up as priests. Hebrews 13. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Do you look at worship as a sacrifice? I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm really not. Please don't take it that way. But I run into a lot of people that worship is a supplementary part of the service. That, hey, we're going to be late to church. We're just going to miss worship. Okay, let's just worship, right? I remember when we used to have announcements near the beginning. I heard the same thing. We're just missing announcements. 
it's the idea that it's kind of a secondary type thing. But when you start looking at what the Bible says, worship is a sacrifice that I'm supposed to offer as a priest to God. And so therefore, you have to remember with worship, and this is so vital when it comes to worship, worship's not about you. It's not about whether you like the song. It's not about whether you like the tempo. It's not about whether you like the style. It's about the Lord. And I know people that worship worship. And what happens is they make their entire church selection over worship. And they'll say things like this, oh, worship was good. I don't know exactly what that means because to be quite honest, you can have an off-key person singing and worship is still good because God is still good. We just have to be careful that we don't start to worship worship. And I'm not saying you should be off-key while singing. You're also supposed to bring the best for the Lord, but that's a different teaching for a different day. Point is this. We're supposed to offer the sacrifice of praise. What else are we supposed to offer up to the Lord? We're supposed to offer up ourselves as an offering. Philippians chapter 2. Yes, and if I, meaning Paul, am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. A drink offering. Please remember, a drink offering. You can't get a drink offering back. If I have my cup of water up here and I say I'm going to offer this water to the Lord as a drink offering and I dump it on the carpet, you can't get the water back. It's gone completely. That's why drink offering was such a big deal. You're not getting it back, so I'm offering up my life. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is reasonable service. So some of the sacrifices I can offer as a priest, worship my own body, my own life, because that's what a priest does. They offer up these sacrifices. And it ends with an amen in verse 6. Why? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Because you stop and you read, that, read this and you say, yeah. The guy that's saving me from my sins, that loves me, makes me a king. I get to be a priest. He's going to take care of me with his grace and peace. Why would I not stop and say amen? And to go one step further, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. He says amen again. Because now you stop and realize this God that loves me, that washed me, that cares for me. He's not leaving me here, verse 7. He's coming back. He's actually going to come back and he wants to be with me and he's going to return for us. And every eye will see him and he's coming in the clouds. You know, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven and he ascended in the clouds, the angels told the disciples at that time that Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to went to the clouds. He's coming back through the clouds. He came back for us. That's what he's going to do here. And he's going to be clearly seen. Once again, this takes away any of the secret return that certain false cults will tell you about. You talk to certain false cults, they'll tell you Jesus returned this year. And he's like hiding in a house or something. It's kind of crazy. No, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, the Jews, and all the tribes of the earth, the Gentiles, will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Why are they mourning? Well, if you've never read Revelation, you realize this as a death and death and more death. You know, if someone ever comes up and says something like, the God of the Old Testament is in a bad mood and the God of the New Testament is in a good mood, well, just go read Revelation. There's more death and destruction in Revelation than any other Old Testament book because they're mourning. Why? Because they're sins. They're not right with Christ, and Jesus is returning, and therefore, it's a sure event Hence the phrase, even so, amen. Remember, amen means so be it. It's like an exclamation point. It's going to happen. So since this is going to happen, 
There's mourning because their sins are not taken care of. And, and God really makes it clear who he is. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning and the end. The Greek there, first and last letter of the alphabet. The beginning and the end says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Note the phrasing in verse 8, who is and who was and who is to come. That's the same description we had back in verse 4 to describe the Father. Really important Trinity proof text right there. Jesus has the same description as the Father has the same description. And if you have the same description, that means there's an equality. Now, some people will come and say, well, really, verse 8 is not referring to Jesus. It's really referring back to the Father. Fine, if you don't want to accept that. But if you go to Revelation 22, 12 through 13, it's the same description. Again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is clearly speaking there. And so, therefore, if Jesus is taking the same titles as the Father... That means there's an equality that's going on. Please note the phrase almighty in verse 8, only used of God in the New Testament. No other description for anybody else but only of God because he truly is the almighty. There is nothing else. Let's pause. Any quick questions about anything here before we uh, continue on? Good? All right, let's do one last uh, verse, actually two verses, and then we'll be done. These are quick. Uh, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, right off there the coast of Asia Minor, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So, a little more description on John. Look how he describes himself there in verse 9. He's brother and companion partner. No name dropping here. Not the apostle, not the whatever. He goes, I'm just your brother, I'm your companion. He's on Patmos. Patmos is a very small, rocky island. It's only about 10 miles by 6 miles. Early church tradition says that he was exiled there. Now, I have to stress that's church tradition. The only thing we have here is what it says in verse 9, that he was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. It kind of carries that context that he was there because of being exiled for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you study out the island Patmos at the time of the Bible, it was not a vacation spot. It's not that something where John would say, you know what, I'm going to go spend a weekend on Patmos. And next thing you know, God's speaking to him. It seems to match up the church tradition, this idea that he was exiled there, and in his exile, the Lord spoke to him. If that is true, and I will say if, because once again, I'm not going to make that a doctrinal statement, isn't that fasting? That's how the Lord chose to speak to John. Now just think about that. Some of you are going through a very, very difficult time. I mean, it is, you feel like you're in a bit of an exile. Physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, you feel like you were just pushed off, and you're on some rocky island. That may be exactly where God wants you to be. Because now I can speak to you. I've shared with you before my love of the book, Pilgrim's Progress. And when they get to Vanity Fair, no one wants to hear about God in Vanity Fair. Because it's just too much fun. Just too much fun. Guess what? There's not a lot of fun on the island Patmos. So therefore, you have a lot of time just to sit and listen. So John is possibly sent to this island. He's sent there to be exiled. And as one commentator said, his persecutors could confine his body, but they could not imprison the Holy Spirit from speaking to him. Boy, that's a beautiful thing. They may have thought they got rid of John. He's on Patmos. The next thing that God says, that's exactly where I want you. I hope you got a piece of paper and a pen with you. Because I got something to show you. And it's at that bleak, difficult, rocky, mountainous time that God says, I'm going to give you something very deep, John. 
And it's what a wonderful blessing it is. Just please remember that. If you're going through something difficult, it may be right where God wants you, and it's a great opportunity for the Lord to speak to you in ways that you never would have heard if you were in Vanity Fair. So we'll pause right there. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Uh, next week, and we'll start getting into more of the description of Jesus, because really verses 10 on is the description of Jesus, and then in chapter 2, we start getting into the letters to the churches. Please remember the actual end times events really start to hit right around chapter 6. So this is the unveiling of Jesus. Um, Before we do announcements and pray, any final questions about anything here before I let you go? John? Was he, did he ever get off the island of Patmos? Church tradition says he did. Assuming he mailed it to them. I don't know. Please be careful anytime you hear somebody say, church tradition says, because church tradition says, we don't know, but church tradition says he did get off the island and he lived to a very ripe old age. Church tradition tells us that. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Let's pray. Lord, may we please have a deeper understanding of the unveiling of who you are as we go through this book. Yes, Lord, please give us wisdom, guidance, and direction on end times. We do not want to be ignorant of it. But Lord, what really matters is could we know the blessing of you more as we go through this. And we pray we could apply this to our lives in your name. Amen. Alrighty, real quick here, we have a lot of different things uh, going on. Prayerfully consider getting involved with these things. Hard to believe, but next Wednesday is the fellowship meal for the month of October. So please come out early for that. And before that happens, there'll be the writing of the word. The ladies get together in room six at 445. Fellowship meal then starts at 545 in the fellowship hall. And you can come out and join us for the food, fellowship, etc. There's a new ladies Bible study also starting up next week, Wednesday at 11 o'clock, uh, starting October 4th at the home of Paula Moore at address and information's back there on the back table. Marsha Chadwick is leading that up. What else do we have going on? Uh, next week, a mom's group is meeting October 2nd from 6 to 7. Um, game board fun for all ages coming up Sunday, October 8th. If you have any questions about that, you can see Jada. No matter what your age, come out for that. And then we also have a game night for middle schoolers and high schoolers. That's October 5th, 15th. If you want to be involved in the courtesy team, that's October 14th. They're having a meeting at 4 o'clock. You can see Jason Phillips with any questions about that. Uh, and I think that's most everything that's going on here. Oh, September 30th, coming up this Saturday, Youth Cleaning and Dodgeball from 9 to 1.30. Youth of all ages are invited to come clean the Lord's house, bring your lunch, a vacuum if available, willing hands and hearts, and they'll, after lunch, do some dodgeball as well. And if you are not a youth, but you still want to come out and help clean, Tony wanted me to make sure that you know any ages are welcome to come out. If you are older, though, and want to play dodgeball, you have to sign a waiver. So, other than that... Um, Hey, have a good week. God bless. Really think about the unveiling of who Jesus is as we go through the book of Revelation. And we will see you guys next week. Take care and God bless.